Now, this morning, we finish off what has been a short series on wisdom for life. Now, over the past uh, five weeks, we've looked at a number of areas on wisdom for life, speech and friendship and guidance, and today, family. And although we're going to finish up with the series today, we're going to come back to this in the evenings at the end of this term and look at uh, work, wealth, and anger. Now, from time to time in sermon series in church, all sorts of dialogue and questions arise, and this has certainly been one of them. Partly, I think, because this material is material we haven't got our heads around as Christians, and it's really good stuff. And so what we'll probably do is have an occasion where we can have questions answered and just discussion around the themes. And no doubt today we'll raise many other questions as well. And we'll let you know um, when that'll be. Now, as with the other subjects in Proverbs, we've pulled together on the sheet, you'll see it, it looks like this in your service sheet, uh, a number of the Proverbs on this particular theme of family. Proverbs doesn't have a chapter on family, then a chapter on speech, a chapter on anger. Um, in some ways, I wish it did. Why does it not? Because in the day-to-day rhythm of life, you need wisdom on all of these things for even one day. So it's kind of scattered through the book. But for this series, we've pulled it together in themes. They're not all the proverbs on family, but they are certainly a good collection of them. I'm going to read that through, and then a short reading from the New Testament. Follow with me on the sheet as I read. Firstly, the kind of foundation proverb, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. An excellent wife who can find she is far more precious than jewels. House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. A wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. It is better to live in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. The adulteress, with her smooth words, forsakes the companion of her youth and forsakes the covenant of her God. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely dear, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. And forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. He who loves wisdom makes his father glad. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom and humility comes before honor. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Discipline your son, for that is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. My son, 
Do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline dries it far from him. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. He who does violence to his father and chases away his mother is a son who brings shame and reproach. If one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. And then these verses, let me just read them from Colossians in the New Testament, 3, 18 to 21. Wives, Paul write, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, lest they become discouraged. Well, we need God's help. There is a whole realm of stuff here for our help. So let's ask God to speak to us. Father, we pray three things. We pray that we'll all listen and uh, we'll allow your word to encourage us, not to discourage us. There is a potential for that here. And whether we are children or parents, whether we are single or married, whether our experience of parenting or marriage is good or ill, we pray, Lord, that we would listen to your wisdom for family life. And by your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of Jesus, who lives in the body, the life, the mind, the heart, the soul of a Christian, by his Spirit, will you enable us to live wisely. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as well as the list of Proverbs, you'll see inside your service sheet uh, a kind of outline with uh, five points on it. Uh, We've tried to work hard at this as a team to uh, get our heads around what is not a a simple or easy subject, and hopefully the logic there will help us. Number one, the foundation of wisdom is fearing God. The worst kind of sermons on this kind of stuff in the Bible, you would sit there and you would hear me speaking kind of moralism, rules. And and we we must get this foundation right. You cannot live a wise life You cannot live a godly life unless you know God in Christ. Christ is the spirit of wisdom. He is wisdom personified. And the Christian has the spirit of Christ living within them, and thus they are able to live wisely. You do not live wisely in order to get to know God either. You know God first, and then you live wisely. And so the key verse in the book of Proverbs, the foundation of wisdom, you'll see it on the list there, number one or zero, in fact, it's not number one, chapter one of Proverbs, verse seven, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fear of the Lord, which means simply humility before God, our understanding of who he is and our need of him is the beginning of knowledge and therefore wisdom for life. And so the question we need to ask ourselves in this series on wisdom is not primarily are we living wisely, but do we fear the Lord? Do we know Jesus Christ 
the spirit of wisdom living uh, within us. Otherwise, you will hear this as moralism, and moralism will send you home deeply discouraged. So, the question God's Word asks of us all in this room is, do we know Jesus? That's the foundation. Is Christ living in you? If you don't, if you're not a Christian, well, I invite you to listen to what it means to live the Christian life with respect to family life. And see if you find that attractive. I hope that you do. And if we come to the Lord's table, this meal, I'll explain what that is. At the end of the service, we come to the cross where the forgiveness of our sins is offered to us through Jesus' death. So you can know Christ, perhaps for the first time this morning. So, let's uh, turn to the second heading, the importance and definition of family in the Bible. Now, the one talk that is usually missed out in a sermon series on wisdom or Proverbs is this one. Now, why do you think that is? Because it's a minefield. Yeah, so here are seven reasons not to carry on this morning with this talk. Number one, and they're, they're, they're important, they're, they're felt by, every, by people in this room, this is going to be real, that you, um, you may be listening to this as a single person, and you long to be married. Perhaps you've come close in your past to being married, and you've not, and you've never been able to really come to terms with that, and it pains you very deeply. You may be a married couple who are unable to have children. You may be in a very unhappy marriage. You may have been married before. Or maybe the relationship you have had or still have with your parents is difficult or worse. Maybe your children have turned away from the life of wisdom in Christ that you sought to instruct them in. Or maybe, and this was, I think, keenly felt by many people in the first service, as uh, it was very striking in the first service, a number of children didn't go out of Sunday club because, according to the parents, they were having wobblies. So they all, and the, you see the children's ears prick up on the sermon on being disciplined by your parents. Just, you might not, you might not feel the pain of these deep things, but you just might feel that you're making a pretty rotten job of being a dad, a mom, or a husband, or a wife, or a kid, or a son, or a daughter. Just a rotten job. Now, so there are reasons that we don't do this, but how much we need this. It's amazing after the first service, and indeed the series on wisdom, people keep saying, we, we, this is great stuff, it's really helpful stuff in the Bible. Why have we not looked at this before? How much we need this wisdom as Christians, as the church, as our society. It is not written to discourage us. It is not written to make us feel so bad, the only answer in this sermon is, turn to Jesus. It's written to remind us that we can't live wisely without Him, but we have Him, so we can. You see, it's there to encourage us. Now, family is very important to God. Family is in the very nature of God. So, Genesis 1.26 let, this is God's words, let us 
make humanity in our image and our likeness. Let us, us, Father, Son, and Spirit, let the family of God make humanity in our likeness, part of which is to have relationship with one another, at the heart of which is the family. So the end of Genesis 2, God's account of creation, a father, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Husband, wife, one flesh, part of which means children, having children. So, right at the beginning of the Bible, family is right at the heart of God's design for humanity. Now, here's the Bible's definition of family. Now, what I'm going to say is radical. You're not going to think it is in this room. But imagine me standing up, say, as a politician. Imagine me in public life. Imagine you as a teacher in a school, standing up and saying, this is what a family is. According to God's word, a family is a man and a woman in the lifelong covenant commitment of marriage as the safe environment for the nurture and upbringing of children. How radical is that? Not in this room, but in our society it is. Many of you will be enjoying the return of the great British Bake Off. Um, Maybe not, but it is great. Um, and uh, I'm learning that, as a bit of an oldie, that most people now no longer, all of you youngies, you don't watch television when the television is actually on. You watch it sometime later. So I keep telling people who's been voted off and voted on <laughs> before they've watched it. You know what's so good about the program? It is entirely free of cynicism. The commentary is not cynical. People aren't chosen in order to set them up. It's not like that at all. It is the most popular program by the soaps in the UK. 14.5 million people watch it. 30 years ago, the equivalent of the Great British Bake Off, and many of you were not born then, some of you were, was a program called Ask the Family, hosted by a man called Robert Robinson. And this is the format of Ask the Family. Two families, usually with 2.4 children in each of them, two families against each other, wife, husband, Son, daughter, or eldest daughter, youngest daughter, against another family. Ask the family. The most popular program on television. 14 million viewers 30 years ago. There is no way on earth that program could be on television now 30 years later. Because our society has radically changed the definition of family. So how does our society define family? Well, Here's what the Office of National Statistics says it is. I quote, Types of family include married or civil partner couple families, cohabiting couple families, and lone parent families. A family is a married, civil partner, or cohabiting couple with or without children, or a lone parent with at least one child who live at the same address. That's how our culture defines family. And in terms of statistics, the cohabiting couple family is the fastest growing family type in the UK. And if present trends continue, if you go 30 years on from now, apparently I'm not sure if these statistics are right, uh, but the number of cohabiting couple families in the UK will be equal to the number of married couple families in the UK. You see the rapid change. Now, so what I said about God's definition of a family is radical. Uh, Now, what do we do as a church? What do we do as Christians when you hear that? 
Four things. One, you despair and you go, oh no, it's awful, isn't it? It wasn't like that in my day. You despair and you kind of give in and you give up on God. One. Number two, you change the church's definition of family to accord with the culture. That has short-term gain, but long-term disaster. Number three, you just withdraw into church communities and don't talk to anyone out there. Or number four, and hopefully none of you think one, two, three are the right answer. Number four, and here's what we don't do as Christians. We don't rejoice and celebrate the fact that God has opened our eyes to see his divinely ordered prescription and mandate for the family, and that as churches, as communities, in the next 30 years, what a fantastic opportunity we have to live as lights, as God's divinely ordered people, with all of our faults and struggles and battles, to show something that is infinitely attractive. One of the things the church needs to do in the UK is stop wringing its hands in despair and celebrate the fact that God has given us a wonderful gospel and wonderful teaching on how to live. So, the point I'm trying to make is that in the Bible, family is important and defined in a very clear way. Now, the two key relationships on family in Proverbs are husband and wife and parents and uh, children. Let's deal with each of these. First, husband and wife are marriage. And I've written there that the Bible has a high and yet an honest view of marriage. Look with me at some of the Proverbs on the sheet, uh, the the list of Proverbs, Numbers 1 and 2. I'm feeling under less pressure because my wife was in the first service and no longer. In fact, she disappeared and came in halfway through the sermon. I thought she'd bottled it, but she came back. Uh, The first two on the sheet, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The Bible has a high view of marriage. It cannot have any higher a view of anything than it has of marriage. And there are many other proverbs that affirm the goodness of marriage. Just to say that when the Proverbs speak about wives, we can read that as just as applicable to husbands. The book of Proverbs affirms the goodness of marriage is a precious gift from the Lord. But the Bible is not unrealistic or idealistic, nor should we be about marriage. Marriage can be very difficult. Marriage can be very unhappy. And the Bible is honest, and we need to be honest. Maybe you're not a Christian and you're listening to this either here or online, what I want to suggest to you is the Bible is the most realistic book you could ever read on relationships. You go into a bookshop, relationships, there are squillions of them. The only book that calls it as it is, is the Bible. It holds up a higher ideal, and it bottoms out in the reality of life. So a third proverb on the sheet, number three, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. And the point, I think, of this proverb is that a marriage can have a big impact on your life for good or for ill. It will bring so much blessing, 
so much good into your life, but in some cases, the opposite. Marriage can be very destructive, very difficult, and a bad marriage makes people very unhappy. So, the next two proverbs on the sheet, four and five, a wife's quarreling or a husband's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. It is better to live in a corner of a housetop or roof than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife or husband. Now, it kind of raises a smile to your face, doesn't it? Until you've lived for 30 years with a husband or a wife that constantly chips away at everything you say or everything you do. Or until you've lived to the point that you cannot bear even to be in the same room or the same house as your husband and your wife. That's what the Proverbs are saying. And it's really tragic and really hard. The Bible has a high yet honest view of marriage. Now let's work these out in terms of application. Three applications. If as a single person you are thinking about marriage, and some of you here might be in a a hypothetical way, you might long to be married in the future, you might be uh, engaged to someone or dating them. So how should you think about marriage? Or if you are a married person, what is it in your marriage you should be giving attention to, to strengthen it? Now, or to recover what you once had, or to even rescue it. Now, I'm not saying these things lightly. I'm saying these things conscious that there are people in this room for these who are really deeply felt. You know that. What should all of us be praying for those who are married and for marriages within our church? Uh, Three C's. Now, I'm not into alliteration normally, but uh, these are good ones. Companionship. Proverbs 2, 16 and 17, number 6 on the sheet. The adulteress, with her smooth words, forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. This proverb is one of a number warning against adultery. And the point here, I think, is that what is forsaken for adultery is companionship. The word translated companion or partner here describes the closest of friends, soulmates. The word is used here and elsewhere to describe the companionship in marriage. A husband and wife should be the closest of friends. Secondly, chemistry or romance, the intimacy that is an important part of marriage. A gift from God that unites a couple in sexual love. Number seven on the sheet, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely dear, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. I think we're a bit wary of a verse like that. We think it's less inspired than the one about fearing the Lord. It's not. It's in God's Word. It's important. Chemistry. But fundamentally, a marriage is bound together by commitment. Proverbs two sixteen to 17. Uh, again, number six, the end of the proverb refers to the covenant of her God. Almost certainly, that is a reference to the marriage covenant. The covenant that reflects God's covenant with his people. And covenant means promise. Covenant means commitment. And commitment is the backbone of a marriage. Why? Because vows are for better, for worse. No a couple getting married feels and understands that, or a few do. Vows are for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness and in health till death 
us do part. Love is never the basis for keeping these promises. Keeping these promises is the basis for keeping love in a marriage. People sometimes say to me, why on earth do I need to get married to say to that person that I love them? Why do I need a bit of paper to say I love them? They know I love them and I do love them. And so they do. But a wedding service is not about standing beside somebody and saying, I love you. You know, heaven help you if you are at your wedding and you don't. A wedding service is about saying before God, I will love you in 30 years. I will love you in thick and in thin, in sickness and in health, better for worse, richer for poor. I will love you when you are not loving me as you should. I will keep on loving you. Companionship, chemistry, and commitment. So, if you are a single person and you are thinking about marriage, what should you be thinking about looking for in a husband or a wife? You should be thinking about companionship. Is this a person that I can spend the rest of my life with as my closest companion and friend? And when we would do marriage prep in the church, one of the things we're looking for to see in a couple is Are they close in that way? Do they have an affinity, a shared understanding, a partnership? They might be uh, chalk and cheese on the outside, but they have that closeness, companionship. Do I share the deepest affinity? Can I confide in them the innermost matters of my heart? And for Christians... The deepest companionship, the deepest affinity is a shared faith in Jesus. So if you are a Christian thinking about marriage, you should be looking to marry a Christian. I mean, you have to think that way because the deepest affinity you have is feeling the Lord. Now, surprisingly, a comment like that is radical in the church now. When Andy mentioned that last week and numbers of people asked, is that right? has to be right. You cannot share that deepest affinity unless you have that deepest affinity in Christ. You can't. Now, there are many people who are married where one or other of the couple are converted. That's a different situation. That's a hard situation. But for those of you who are thinking about marriage, is that affinity there, that compassion? And is there a chemistry? Is there a spark? You know, my wife looks at me and she thinks I'm beautiful. But you might look at me and think I've got great big ears. There's got to be spark. There's got to be chemistry. There has to be at the start. There has to be. And that's thoroughly biblical. And fundamentally, is there commitment? Now, I can see some people here who are about to get married. And I know, and my heart is settled, that they will stand on a stage like this in front of me in front of all their family and friends and before their God, and they will mean what they say. They will mean what they say. I will love you now and in the future. There's got to be that commitment. If you are married, what is it that you should be giving attention to in your marriage to strengthen it? And you need to know that your minister, who gets a whole week on this, if not more in prep, has really benefited from studying this. So, we're all in the same boat together. What should we be working on in our companionship? Are you talking to your spouse? Or are you like ships in the night? Have you let the deepest of friendships 
drift. One of somebody after the first service, does that mean we should go away for a weekend together without our kids? I said, absolutely. Because we haven't talked to each other properly for years. And what about the chemistry, the romantic element in marriage? Has that been dampened down or has it gone altogether? Has it been replaced by something else? Whether you've been married for a year, five years, or 25 years, that chemistry, that intimacy is important. And one of, one of the things that is most elusive in a marriage after time is intimacy. It's really important. And commitment. No, marriage is easy. Am I willing? I've been married nearly 20 years. Imagine that. 20 years. We saw all these people in St. Andrews yesterday dropping off their children. I thought, that'll be ages. It's not. It's two years away. It's terrible. I feel for your parents. 20 years on, am I as committed to these promises as I was? Now, as a church family, these are the things we should be praying for. Companionship, chemistry, and commitment. Let me finish this section with a beautiful proverb of marriage. You see it as number eight on the sheet. Price her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a garland, a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. The Bible is so strong and affirming of marriage, yet realistic about its difficulties. Let's consider now the second key family relationship in Proverbs, parents and children. Lots of us here are parents, and lots of us here are children of whatever age. Now, we look at this in in two ways. First, they parents to children, and then children to parents. Now, as we think about parents to children, don't switch off if you're a child, not a, a parent. If you've come from a Christian home, as many of you have, what is it that your parents have been trying to do for the last 18, 20, or 22 years? What did my parents and I was privileged to come from a Christian home, try to do with me when the last thing on earth I wanted them to do was what they did. Wise parenting means, number one, having the right aspirations, the right goals for your kids. Read with me Proverbs 9 and 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and a pendant for your neck. He who loves wisdom makes his father glad. The first of these, remember the key foundation verse in Proverbs 1-7. Chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The most important thing in my life as a father, the most important thing in your parents' life, if they are Christians, is that they themselves live life feeling the Lord, that they trust in Jesus Christ. What comes in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, that your kids do as well? You see the logic? Verse 8, hear my son, your father's instruction. 
And for your, forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants. For you. So what are your aspirations, your goals for your children? The most important thing by miles and miles is that they fear the Lord, that they trust Jesus. So I'm going to ask one of you a question as a parent, not out loud, but hypothetically. What are your goals and aspirations for your children? I'm trying to catch a parent's eye. What are my goals and aspirations for my children? If you ask a Christian parent that, they will say that their child trusts in Jesus. They'll say that. But let me ask a different question. Does your son or your daughter know by what makes you glad, by what makes you happy for them, that that is the highest aspiration you have for your children? Or do we default into that mindset that what they do, what they get, what their grades are, how fast they run, all the rest of it is what really matters. Now that stuff thrills your heart. I'd love my son to be a professional golfer. I really would. But I'd love him to be a Christian more. It's not that that stuff is, is not good. It's common grace. I think there's common grace when you hit a golf ball 300 yards. It's that beautiful rhythm. But it doesn't matter as much as whether he trusts in the Lord Jesus. That must be our highest, and they must know it is. They must know it is by what we say and what we do. How does a child come to fear the Lord? How does a child come to love wisdom and live wisely? Proverbs sets out two things we are to do, and then says something else. Two things we are to do as parents, two things your Christian parents have tried to do with you if you have grown up in a Christian home, two things you will have to do if God gives you children in the future. Firstly, instruction or education. Now, there are numerous proverbs that say this. I've included three, Numbers 11, 12, and 13. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to the proof gains intelligence. The feet of the Lord is instruction and wisdom and humility comes before honor. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. And then 7-2 is the same thing. Instruction, teaching, about what? Instruction about God, the gospel, and the Christian life. Now, who are the educators? Who's got the baton? Not the school. Used to be the case, but not now. You're not going to get instruction in biblical wisdom at school. Used to, but not now. You're not going to get it at a university, probably. Whose job is it? Is it the job of Ian Devereux who runs our Sunday club and our youth leaders and all that? Yes. But whose primary job is it to educate your children in wisdom? The Bible says it's your job, your parents' job. Great responsibility, great privilege. If you think you're doing a good job, remember it's a great privilege. If you think you're doing a bad job, remember it's a great privilege. The other way around, you know what I mean. Don't, don't get down on yourself. It's your job. It's my job. When we were chatting about this on our staff team this week, one of our guys recalled when they were a kid and there were 15 minutes of family devotions at breakfast every day and they hated it because it made them late for school. 
They used to pretend to be sick in the morning so they couldn't go to it. But every day, every day for years and years and years, dad or mom got out the Bible and read it, probably didn't explain it very well, and then they prayed for the day. And the day before this guy's wedding day, he said to his dad, thank you, dad, thank you for doing that every day of my life. What a difference it made. I didn't know it at the time. And if you're a parent, your children will not run up to you and say, Daddy, Daddy, when's Bible time? They're not going to do that. But then maybe one day they'll say, Daddy, why haven't we done the Bible? And one day they may thank you. Now, let me just say at this point too that some of the parents that I have known who have set a wonderful example in family devotions and godly discipline, their children are not yet Christians. We'll come back to that in a minute. Instruction? Oh, but family devotions are kind of old hat, aren't they? We don't do that anymore. I was up in, in the Highlands, in Inverness, and uh, there was a family I was in, and they, they have family devotions. They sing psalms. And they read the Bible and this tea goes cold because the prayers are so long. But then you chat about their family and, and the, the children, the grandchildren, there's just a love for the Lord everywhere. We could well do with bringing that old-fashioned stuff back. Now, if you think that's right, you're looking for Bible material to read with your spouse or your girlfriend or whatever or if you need Bible material to read yourself, if you need material to help read your children, family devotions, there's an army of good stuff out there. and We can give you that really good and helpful stuff. Instruction. And secondly, loving discipline. A child comes to fear the Lord through instruction in the gospel, the word of God, but also through loving uh, discipline. And there are a whole lot of proverbs on discipline. I put a few on the sheet. Numbers 14 to 16. Let me read one. Number 14. Discipline your son, for that is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Now, how as parents we choose to discipline our children is a personal decision. And uh, uh, it's a personal decision. Yep. It may depend also on the character of the child. We have three children. You cannot discipline that one like that one like that one. Some have thick skin, some have thin skin, some have middle skin. You just learn wisely how to discipline your kids. But whether or not we should discipline our children is not in question. It is a God-given responsibility for parents. And discipline should always be motivated by love. It is because we love our children that we discipline them. So, proverb number 17, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So we discipline our children because God disciplines us as children. Our children need to grow up knowing what is a wise way to live and what is not. They need to know, grow up knowing that one day, God willing, they will live under the Lordship of Christ. And that is seen for the first time in the home, if that home reflects the image of God. Now let me say one more thing on discipline. This is a little radical, a little risky. What should we discipline our kids for? Yes, we all sometimes discipline our kids when they break things or when their rooms are a total mess. Why do we discipline our kids when their rooms are a total mess? If our rooms are a total mess, 
because it just gets us. It makes us angry. That's no reason to discipline them. Really, and I said this in error in service one, don't discipline your children for not tidying their rooms. But in the end of the day, that shouldn't be what angers me as a parent. What I should discipline my kids from in love is when they stray from the paths of the wisdom of God. When they lie, that should matter far more to me than if their socks are lying all over the floor. What I'm trying to get at here is don't discipline your kids because it just gets you and it's just not the way you are and it makes you angry. Never discipline out of anger. Always out of uh, love. Now, it's a risky thing. Don't go home and uh, never tidy your room again if you're relatively young. You see the point, I think. I think it's important. Now, these are the two things we are to do as parents. These are the two things your parents, if you grew up in a Christian home, sought to do for you. But the third thing and the most important thing is not what they do or we do, it's what God does. It is difficult to bring up a child to fear the Lord, isn't it? It is really hard. Why? Proverbs number 18, folly is in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it from him. There were two uh, little boys um, in the first service, um, blonde-haired, beautiful, when they're asleep. And you could see their parents coming and just kind of, you know, folly in the heart of a kid kicks in about, well, you see it about age six months. And it's not easy. It's not easy. And so, however much instruction you give, However wise you are about disciplining your children, in the end of the day, it needs the Spirit of God to open their hearts. You can't do it. I can't do it. Only God can do it. And that is a great liberation. It is not our job to convert our children. It is our job to be good parents. God has no grandchildren. He has children. And they need to come onto the same plane as us. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Now, it may be that you are not a parent of a two-year-old beautiful little kid who's got folly in their heart. It may be you're a parent of a 40-year-old or a 25-year-old who has folly in their heart and who hasn't trusted Jesus. Pray for them. It's not your responsibility. Pray that God will graciously open your heart. And I long that you will come and tell me one day that your kid says to you, look, I understand now, and thank you, thank you for reading the Bible with me all these years and showing me the way of wisdom. Now, finally, children to parents. Lots of you here who are children. Lots of us have parents. Honor them always. That's a biblical command, whatever age they are. What a powerful message that is in our society. Honor the elderly. Honor elderly parents. And of course, one of the most frightening things in our culture is that we're not far from touching distance of people who are elderly being seen in our society as an inconvenience and the terrible stuff that might go with that. Honor your elderly parents. I mean, for a practical reason that what you hear them saying, you are all going to say one day as well. In my day, it was better. Honor them. And part of honoring your parents is listening to them. 
A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. My dad is not a man of many words. But when he phones me up and says, you need to see me, I need to speak to you, it would be folly of me not to listen to him. It always has been folly. Wise, listen to your parents. Listen to them and obey them. That is particular to children, to teenagers. Obey your parents. Children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. Colossians 3.19. But and that obedience shifts as you grow up into adulthood. You need to make your own decisions. Pull your weight. What does that mean? <laughs> he who gathers in summer, number 22, is a prudent son, but he who sleeps... In, har- is, in harvest is a son who brings shame. What that means is, is, is just pull your weight in the home. I think that's what it means. So when you guys all go home to uh, your parents when you're 18 or 19, I remember doing that. And what do you get? You get a free laundry, free meals. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> um, I should do it again. Um, you get free uh, money usually as well. Pull your weight. Listen to them still. So if you're Dad says to you, look, son, I know you're a student, but it would just be great if you put a tie on to go and see your auntie or whatever. Just do it. Just do it. Just do it because you love them. Just do it because you want them to know you listen to them, you value them, you honor them. Or just do it once out of three times. Just do it. It's what this is saying. Pull your weight, especially if you are a Christian and come from a non-Christian home. Show to them what a a son or a daughter who fears the Lord lives like and looks like. And give them joy. He who loves wisdom makes his father glad. Those of you who have come down or up to university who are Christians and your parents are Christians, you need to know, and I'm only two years away from this, that it will make your parents so thrilled and so joyful to know that you settle into a church, that you go to a CU or whatever it is, and you follow the Lord Jesus. Tell them, tell them. It will make their hearts glad. Wonderfully glad. Now, as we finish, number five, the gospel, the family of God, and the church family. I said at the beginning that a series on Proverbs is risky. A sermon on family is the riskiest of all. Why? Because while many of us will listen to this and give thanks for what we have had in our life, While many will listen to this, sitting next to the person to whom we are married, where there is companionship and chemistry and commitment. That is not true of us all in this room. It is not true of many of you listening to this online. And I want to finish, therefore, and I want to finish by reminding us all of the gospel, not as a kind of tag-on or a tack-on to the end of a sermon, but if you are the very best parent in the world, if you are the very best son or daughter in the world, you know how much you need Jesus to live like this. And if you do know Jesus, you are married to someone who will never break a marriage vow. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have a Father in heaven who is a perfect, perfect Father. So even if Even if you have suffered the greatest pain of all in family, life, whatever that is, to have a Father in heaven and to be married to Jesus Christ, 
is a great consolation and comfort to our souls. And what is a church family? A church family is a place where there are brothers and sisters in the Lord. One of the most moving verses in the New Testament is Jesus to Peter. Peter says, we've left everything to follow you. And that doesn't mean money always. It can mean the estrangement from members of your family. Some of the most painful situations I have seen over the years are students being converted at university who, who find it so very difficult after that to go home and to hear what is said. And they come back to uni, they come back to their church family, and they find that encouragement. And over time, many of their parents have come to accept it or even come to faith. And Jesus says to Peter, whoever has left brothers or sisters or family or jobs or homes for me and for the sake of the gospel will receive in this life a hundredfold. If your relationships have been strained because of faith, God will give you relationships not only to replace them, but to sustain them and to bless you. How much we need God's wisdom on life. How much we need God's wisdom on family. Let's pray. Father God, there is so much here. We pray, Lord, that we would sieve this and think about it and pray about it and take to heart what is relevant and important for each of us to learn and respond to and live by. We pray, Lord, for those who hear this and it causes pain, and there will be many of us here for whom it does or regret. We pray that you would heal and restore and encourage. And remind us now as we come to the Lord's table of the forgiveness we all need in Jesus Christ, of the fact that through forgiveness we are brought into a family where we call God Father and Jesus, our brother, that we're married to him in that perfect covenant love and that we are brought into church families where we have brothers and sisters in the Lord. So will you heal where there is brokenness? And maybe, Lord, that by your Spirit you will lead somebody into the family of God for the first time and the Spirit of God will come to live in them and they will be able thereby to live wisely because they fear the Lord. Help us to concentrate as we come to the table and then to the cross. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.